We have a look at some of the hot social issues of the week. Social puzzles joining us in the studio, as always, is Stephen Borowick, a journalist based here in Seoul. Hello. Good morning. Good morning to you. Let's first talk about, this is a story that kind of indirectly ties in with people's skepticism of the vaccine. And also, uh, I would say maybe some of the um, the media reporting on Uh, the vaccines, not just with vaccine procurement, but also kind of questioning the efficacy and safety of certain vaccines. Um, It's a heartbreaking story, first of all, but uh, there is a husband right now that has tried to submit a petition to uh, the Blue House website, uh, basically calling for the government to take responsibility for her wife's ailment. um, And sequentially, the wife received a vaccine. She works in the medical sector and has now fallen ill um just your overall thoughts on this i don't know much about the the particulars of this woman's medical condition or her medical history one thing that seems to be kind of uh, has complicated the vaccine rollout in a number of countries is you get these cases including in korea of somebody who has the vaccine and then they subsequently have some kind of health ailment and then it turns out that what happened to them is not generalizable. It wouldn't happen to just any healthy person who took the vaccine. It could be because they had some kind of underlying health condition. And so I I don't know exactly what this woman's health condition was before she took the virus. The interesting thing to me about this is what this man is arguing in his petition is that the government encouraged everybody to get vaccinated. And so the the government kind of vouched for the safety of this vaccine. And his wife appears to have fallen quite ill as a result of taking that vaccine. So he argues that the government is therefore liable. And I think in his position, he said that he's now dealing with some very serious and very expensive medical costs that he can't afford to cover. And so he's asking the government to take responsibility here. That's an interesting question that I think like legal experts would have to parse. It's kind of beyond my expertise. But just who is liable here in a case like this, like where the government encourages the public to take a certain medical step and then there are side effects of that medical step? Does this guy have a point? It's an interesting question. It's it's kind of a multi kind of faceted process here because on the one hand, and it's, it's, you, ha- you have to have empathy and sympathy for, for the situation because you don't wish this on anybody regardless of wh- whether, you know, the, it's, it's regarding the vaccine or not. But you would have to establish causality with the vaccine, not just a sequence of, you know, the the chronological order was uh, the woman took the vaccine and then chronologically later fell ill. There are a host of different factors involved with that. And so that's one thing, and that's probably a painstaking and probably not even a clear-cut process as if whether that can be established or not. Secondly, it is this idea that does the government hold... um, have liability in this because of the fact that they are advocating for the population to get inoculated because of the fact that um, the science does say that uh, once the population is 70% immunized from this, the virus will eventually die out and that uh, that herd immunity, as we've been talking about, gets established and we can finally take off our masks and live somewhat normal lives. And that seems to be the goal that every country around the world we're seeing right now. And the countries that have been a little bit faster with vaccinations like Israel, like the UK, and it looks like the US right now, they're sort of starting to reap the benefits of that. Yeah, we can all agree that we want to get to that stage where we no longer have to wear masks and we can get back to regular life. Um, I mean, sorry if I come across as too Canadian here, but also this seems to me like an argument in favor of single-payer health care because the, 
as you quite correctly point out, the in order for to determine who is really responsibility here, there needs to be a detailed examination into this woman's health conditions and and you know everything that happened to her, and that takes time. And in the meantime, this guy is having to find some way to cover these very expensive medical bills. It would be preferable, I think, if if Korea had a medical system where yeah. people could remain in hospital and not have to worry about those kinds of things. Um, I've been, I've just personally been surprised at the amount of vaccine skepticism in Korea. This, I think like one thing throughout the first roughly year or so of the pandemic that set Korea apart was that the public here had a quite high degree of trust in the medical establishment. They complied with social distancing guidelines and, and sort of did all the things that physicians were recommending. This is this is one thing, I, I, this is not an original bit of analysis for me. I, I interviewed one professor who told me this. He said, what had really made the difference in Korea is that Koreans don't trust politicians, but they do trust scientists. They do trust doctors. They look at the medical establishment as being comprised of people who are smart and studied hard and have earned their expertise and, and ought to be deferred to. But you can see that this doesn't apply in all cases. I wonder, just uh, throwing out the possibility, I wonder if maybe one reason for the skepticism here is that these vaccines are imported and that they come from outside. And therefore, there may be a bit of built-in skepticism among the South Korean public when it comes to something that comes into the country from outside. People, I think, are a little bit less likely to trust something from outside. Yeah, not to get too much in the weeds here or uh, on too many tangents, I think... Technically speaking, the framework for the overall Korean medical system is a single-payer scheme. The problem is the coverage of this yeah, is not yeah. expansive like in other countries yeah. like, like uh, Canada or even other countries where there's a bit of a mix with private and public uh, health care coverage. Moon Jae-in Care is aiming to be much more comprehensive on that. But as you've probably covered in your uh, reporting, um, there there is a big sort of resistance to that among yeah. the medical community, particularly the doctors, doctors. particularly the, the ultra-right-wing KMA, which is headed by Choi Dae-jip. And I'm wondering if you've sort of, um, in your kind of research on that, where you see that, yes, there are certainly um, people who believe in the science uh, and maybe don't trust politicians with vaccines itself. Do you feel that... Um, there has been some reporting by the Korean language media that does seem to sort of um, kind of follow a narrative and then kind of stick with that narrative. AstraZeneca, bad. AstraZeneca, dangerous. And uh, even though, let's say, the vast majority of the population in the UK, which has reached a very significant um, uh, critical mass number of vaccinations, has been inoculated with the AstraZeneca vaccine, but somehow... um, the Pfizer vaccine is considered like the, yeah. the Myungpum, the, the, the luxury <laughs> vaccine. Everyone wants that one. And and then we have this idea that the procurement issue has not been up to par and, and all of that, although that the, the deals have been struck and the government is saying that they have been receiving the supplies on the scheduled times. It's just a matter of ramp up. And once we get into the second, third quarters, it's going to be up significantly that um, that does not necessarily help the situation. People who are going to be prone to be skeptical or even maybe uh, hostile to the idea of getting a vaccine. It's a problem that I don't think is unique to Korean language media or to Korean media at all. I mean, as someone who works in media, I think I should own up to the fact that what journalists look for is the novel, the 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 exception, the you know, uh, the the old line is "man bites dog." Is that you know that's a story because it's unconventional yeah. and something you don't expect. In a case like this, where you find that one, all it takes is one case, you know, perhaps like the one that we're discussing here today one case of something very bad and very scary happening to have a disproportionate 
effect on increasing skepticism on something that is otherwise quite safe. I've seen some kind of uh, reporting expressing frustration over this where some people are accusing the media of unfairly or disproportionately highlighting the negative cases associated with vaccines and that ultimately having the effect of undermining public health in that it creates an unwarranted level of skepticism and it discourages people from getting vaccinated and it drags yeah. out this long pandemic that everybody is desperate to see go. One one thing we can probably all agree on, regardless of where we stand on the vaccination issue, we do hope that uh, the wife does uh, recover Absolutely. eventually uh, from uh, whatever is ailing her. Let's turn to our second story here, and this is maybe you can uh, where you can reference your uh, dusty old copy of Das Kapital, <laughs> and uh, maybe you're going to use an analogous comparison to what's going on here in Korea. Apparently, some controversy over the uh, release of the Kim Il Sung. A memoir entitled With the Century in English, Kyobo, the, the nation's biggest bookseller, uh, decided to stop selling it. However, uh, we're talking about now um, in this uh, age of uh, living in the 21st century, whether it's even this you know, post-Cold War mentality where this is even supposed to be a big deal. And if people buy it, are they intelligent enough to discern whether this is valid ideology or not? This story keeps coming up, and it's one way that I really hope that the governments will change the way that it's traditionally handled this. You know, I've so, a long time ago, after Kim Jong il died, I did a bunch of reporting. That tells you how long I've been here. I did a bunch of reporting on these pro North Korea groups who were genuinely sad that, that Kim Jong il had died and were mourning his death and had been arrested for. Uh, under the national security law, which is this infamous law that bans uh, in praise of North Korea. But of course, the, the difficult part is that anything, almost anything could yeah, be yeah. constituted as praise. And during one of these interviews, uh, this activist, he said he was talking about the brilliance of Kim Jong-il's Juche ideology. And he said to me, do you, do you understand Juche ideology? And I kind of did the reporter thing where I played dumb. And I said, well, of course, I could never claim to understand it. You know, can you explain it to me? And that led me on a kind of deep dive of research. And I came away with the impression that Kim Il-sung's writings are mostly nonsense. Like there's, there's not a lot to them. There, there's nothing in them that I think is going to be particularly persuasive or particularly attractive to any educated reader. And by banning them, what the government effectively says is that they don't think that the reading public of this country is mature enough to figure that up for themselves. And that then has the effect of lending these materials a certain kind of cachet. And it, it's, you know, when you're told that you can't have something, what does that do? Well, it makes you want it more. It makes you wonder why someone is trying to prevent you from having it. So I'm strongly in favor of the government just, or Gilbo or whoever is the decision maker here, let whoever buy, wants to read this book go ahead and read it and let them see for themselves and make up their own mind about it. I don't think that we're not in the Cold War anymore. I don't, I don't think that this material needs to be treated as some kind of dangerous and hot item. Right. So sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? That's the old cliche. There you go. You just free marketplace of ideas, another cliche. Just put it out there and see what people think. If if you really feel that the majority of the population that reads this is somehow going to just become brainwashed and, and become ideologues and uh, advocate for Juche ideology and uh, um, want to be under the North Korean regime in, in terms of um, political leadership, that that's that's a pretty, I, I guess, um, a big stretch to to think so. The problem I find with this is because I see this a lot with 
English language, um, let's say leftist Twitter, and, and this um, kind of schism you see on the left here, where you have people who might be considered social democrats, and they're considered really left, let's say the AOCs and the Bernie Sanders, and then you have the... Um, the, the tankies, right? The, the guys who actually really believe that Maoist ideology and, and, and Stalin, that, that was the way to go. Everything gets again conflated into this whole thing of being the left. And then even the Democratic Party, which is a very centrist and in some, in relative terms compared to other countries, a very center-right party yeah, in the yeah. U.S. is considered to be this sort of left-wing thing. That's the same thing that you find here. The Democratic Party here in Korea is not a left-wing party. But because of the way this whole National Security Act and and the the decades of militaristic right-wing, you can say fascistic rule here in the country, it's kind of had this uh, framework of anybody who is not uh, completely on the uh, right-wing conservative ideological spectrum is automatically conflated with this sort of um, beyond left-wing type of ideology. And it's just not helpful for uh, any fruitful political discourse. No, and as anyone who follows politics in this country can tell you, I think less so now, but like calling somebody pro-North Korea is a, is a slur that's been, you know, thrown at anybody, yeah. anybody who's got any, particularly when the, the conservatives have been in power, they, they accuse anybody who wants to see some kind of distribution of resources or some kind of uh, uh, substantive change to the way that governance goes ahead. They're accused of being pro-North Korea and, and they're told by the, the far right that yeah. they need to be clamped down and brought under control so that they don't... Uh, enact some devious plot to hand the country over to North Korea and have everybody living under communism. Uh, I think all South Koreans, with the exception of a, you know, and going back to what we were talking about earlier, like I feel like looking back on this reporting I did almost a decade ago, I probably shouldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. I probably should not have highlighted that there is this tiny, tiny fringe right. number of people who are in favor of North Korea because. Unless, I don't remember exactly how I wrote the article, but like, if you're going to do that kind of reporting, you really need to contextualize things and you really need to make clear that this is not the majority. And And you have to differentiate between people, let's say, again, this centrist party like the Democratic Party that wants engagement with Mm -hmm. North Korea, that wants to figure out ways where there can be some areas of, let's say, economic cooperation Mm -hmm. or cultural cooperation and eventually have some kind of peace. That is very different from these tankies who believe that Kim Il-sung that ideology should rule the entire peninsula, right? Yeah, there's a there's a lot of distance between those positions. And I think anybody who reads this book or and I, I think if you talk to regular South Koreans, North Korea is not a country that they admire. They they see North Korea as a kind of poor and isolated place. And it's it's not somewhere that they they don't want to right. study the ideology of North Korea because they see it as something that they should right. adopt. There's a compassion for the people of North Korea. Yes, yes, there there is, and that nobody nobody likes the situation of how this long situation of division has persisted for as long as it has. And I think people do want to see peace, and they do want to see the in the early stages of the Moon administration, his policy to increase engagement and to try to reach some kind of peace was quite popular. If you live here, of course, you would rather see the two sides cooperating than threatening each other and yeah. having there be some kind of risk of violent conflict. Nobody likes that. Yeah, I, I don't think the red baiting um, is as resonant as it was in yeah. elections past. And it lo- does look like the opposition has somewhat shifted their, their tactics now in terms of that. Yeah. They can attack real estate policy. They've, they've got other, yeah, they've got <laughs> other things they to do about. now. Yeah, that they have other avenues of um, uh, kind of 
points that they can make to win a debate. Let's talk about our final story here. There was some pictures that went viral. It was showing depicting nine female police officers um, having difficulty sort of um, uh, physically removing a protester. And so this inevitably led to a lot of derisive comments about women, about women police officers, how physically they are not capable of doing the job. And that uh, this is, again, I, I guess a chauvinistic way to put it, a job better left to men. Uh, your thoughts? <laughs> put you on the spot here. <laughs> I, I can take it. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm glad that this is a country that doesn't have a whole lot of violent crime. And I'm, I'm glad that police officers here, less than in a lot of other parts of the world, less frequently do they have to physically yeah. fight somebody or physically drag somebody away. That is an important part of policing. And, you know, I'm sure that the, the poli- Korean police services do need to employ some bigger and burlier officers. But I think that, you know, in the in the West right now, there's this whole huge debate about the meaning of policing and, you know, trying to improve on how policing has customarily been practiced. And one thing that I think is we ought to note is that policing requires more different kinds of skill than just brute force. Policing requires the ability to talk with people and to engage with people and to build trust and to uh, establish a kind of uh, cooperative presence in the community. And I think having female officers is helpful for that. Uh, you know, uh, women tend to have a different kind of maybe be less aggressive. Maybe be, I, I can think of my own experiences with police throughout my life. The unpleasant encounters I've had with police officers have all been men, and that's just anecdotal. That's just my experience. It's, it's not generalizable, but I think having female police officers is is good. I don't know these particular photos about this that show these nine female police officers having some kind of difficult time with the processor. I'm not sure that that's a significant enough incident in and of itself that it warrants a, a wholesale uh, reorientation yeah. of Korean policing, but. There's more than one skill that's that's needed to be an effective police officer. And I don't know anything about the particular officers implicated in this case, but clearly the police need to have different kinds of officers. And I don't think that this is a, an indication that female police officers are not up to the job. And it's moving in the opposite direction. If, if people are advocating for this uh, stronger, robust uh, guys who, who have more muscles uh, to be able to deal with the situation, then the trends we're seeing worldwide, especially in the United States, especially after the Derek Chauvin uh, verdict, where there is now a, a wider movement to have police, uh, more diversity training, more um, sensitivity training, more ideas of de-escalation of situations, and, you know, maybe not resorting to guns, because in the U.S., uh, even female officers are armed, and that does lead to a lot of situations, unfortunately, where we have seen a lot of uh, blacks get killed uh, at the hands of white police officers. Here, as you say, diversity always provides a perspective that would be helpful, and just because they can't manhandle a person as well doesn't necessarily mean that it's um, a bad thing. No. And fortunately, unlike other parts of the world, Korean police officers, I I do believe they have guns, if I'm not mistaken, but they don't. You don't hear all that often about police shootings here. And yeah, I do think some of the and just as as I'm sure, you know, right after the Derek Chauvin verdict, there was a number of cases of more police killings. Yeah. Nobody wants to see that. And so let's just let's just keep in mind that. 
police have a variety of ways that they can de-escalate situations and that they can address yeah. the issue of public safety. It's a funny meme, but uh, at the end of the day, it does not remove the idea that uh, there should definitely be uh, more diversity in all institutions. Well said. Stephen, as always, thank you very much. Talk to you again next week. Talk to you then.